chapter 4. I was in the grocery store this week aiming for a head of lettuce, walking along the produce aisle, and there was a fella ahead of me in a wheelchair, and he kept looking over his shoulder, and I kept walking behind him, and I'm sure he, I could just see him thinking, oh, I, I'm in this man's way, and he kind of kept going, and, and I just kept walking because I was headed for the lettuce right over there, in the same place he was going. But I, realized, I looked around to get a bag for my lettuce, and I realized all the bags are, are way beyond where he can reach. So I, I, I said, would you like a bag? And he said, yeah, and I ripped it off and I handed it to him. And uh, as, he, as he reached his hand up, I could see it wasn't just his legs that were disabled, but his, his hands were also. And so I said, do you want two bags? And he said, yeah, so I gave him another bag. Uh, I have had very minor problems uh, through my knee surgery compared to problems like this fella had. I don't know what his disability is, but I'm telling you, being bummed up has given me a, a greater awareness. And so I just thought, I mean, I, I felt like saying, buddy, could I follow you around the store and just help you out? I, I felt, I felt, uh, I won't say I felt, felt sorry for him, but I just thought, you know, you need some help. You don't have anybody to help you. My heart went out to him more than it used to because I have a new appreciation of physical health and strength. And, and, uh, and I can't really imagine what it's like for him. But as much as my heart went out to him, it's nothing, nothing compared to the heart that Christ has for us. And he has that heart because he understands our life. Look in Hebrews 4, chapter 14, or verse 14. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. That is our confession of faith. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The word for temptation and the word for test or trial in the New Testament is the same word. It's translated differently by the English translators as they felt it fit the context. But the root idea is always the same. And that root idea is that something challenging is put in front of us that is going to demonstrate what is inside of us. Sometimes it comes in the form of, of absolute evil. Sometimes it comes in the form of something good. But the concept of tempting or testing is the same. And so Jesus was tested in all points like we are, and yet without sin. Jesus could not have sinned because he was God, but in his human nature, he felt what we feel when the tempting situations are placed before us. And because of that, he sympathizes with us. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. I want to turn to that great passage that talks about his temptation, Matthew 4, and learn what we can about our weaknesses from the areas in which he was tempted. And I hope that by the time we get done, you'll understand that Christ understands you. And he understands your life. And he is a faithful Savior. Matthew chapter 4, 
starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led away by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Don't you love the way God wrote that? Did God need to write that? (laughs) Did he need to say, you know, after not eating for 40 days, he was really hungry. But God knows we're a little dull sometimes. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, and he quotes from the Old Testament, if you can't tell that by your translation, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan! For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The first thing that we understand about Christ is this. Christ understands our desire for physical comfort. Christ understands our desire for physical comfort. Jesus had nothing to eat for 40 days, and that was not an accident. It was God's will. His temptation was especially acute because he hadn't eaten for 40 days. He was hungry. Do you remember the last time you were really hungry? Uh, You know, some people, uh, I, I hear some people say, boy, I've been so busy I haven't had time to eat. And I think, boy, I don't know what that's like. I can be busy and eat with one hand. You know, once in a while you get that sort of famished feeling because you haven't eaten for maybe four or five hours, (laughs) maybe all day. Can you imagine going 40 days without food? Unbelievable. I can't imagine what that hunger is like. Most of us don't go that long, but he went 40 days. Now, what I want you to understand is Christ understands what it's like to be hungry. And to want food. But he also understands some other physical desires we have. From Mark 6.31, Jesus said to the disciples, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place or an alone place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. This is later in the ministry. He's got the disciples. They've been out preaching. They're kind of coming and going. And it comes to a point where he looks at them and he says, these guys are getting worn out. But if they didn't have time to eat, he also didn't have time to eat, which is a twofold problem. Number one, hunger, but number two, fatigue. He knows what it's like to be fatigued and to think, oh man, I want to go out to the desert somewhere, to a deserted place, to an alone place where there aren't any people and I just want to sit down and rest. 
And as if these needs aren't enough, he also knows what it's like to stare death right in the face. Inasmuch then as the children, that's us, have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, likewise shared in the flesh and blood that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give help to angels, but he gives aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make a satisfaction or a payment for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered... Being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus looked death straight in the face. He understands our desire for physical survival, our desire for physical comfort. Every day, we need to eat and sleep and rest periodically in the midst of activity. And besides these human needs... We can get sick, and when things get out of balance, we can get cranky and upset and so on. And when we look death in the eye, we have the greatest challenge of all. And so our weakness as human beings is to make our physical existence the greatest priority of our life. And the devil knew that. And so after Jesus had fasted for 40 days, the first thing he said was, turn the stones into bread. You're the son of God. You're the creator of the world. If we understand Colossians 1.17 correctly, God created a plan. Jesus created, he, he carried out that plan. He creates the world. And so the devil, the devil knows that he did that. And he says, hey, turn the stones into bread. You know you're hungry. He encouraged Jesus to take matters into his own hands to meet his own needs. Why couldn't Jesus have made bread? Why not? Here's why. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, that is, having the very nature of God in eternity past, did not consider it something to be clung on to like a treasure that is stolen, to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form, the nature of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The appearance of Christ in eternity, in glory, in heaven, is so much that Moses would not have even been able to look at it and survive. And Jesus voluntarily took that appearance away, if you will, and put on a human body with a human nature and voluntarily humbled himself and became obedient. He was not less God than he was before, but he voluntarily humbled himself and said, I will carry out the Father's plan. And that humility and that obedience went all the way to the cross, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But he came to earth, and he existed 
as God in human nature, subservient to the Father to carry out the plan of salvation. And as such, he didn't get to do just anything he wanted to do. We studied through the Gospel of John a couple of years ago, and over and over Jesus said, I'm only going to do what the Father says. I'm only going to say what the Father says to me to say. He lived in humble obedience to the Father. And so here, at this point in his life, when he is obediently going through temptation, not to see if he will sin, but to prove that he can't sin, when he's going through that temptation, the devil says, take things into your own hand because you know your physical existence is the most important thing to a human being. And how did Jesus say no to that temptation? Listen to this from John chapter 4. You know this story, Jesus and the woman at the well. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of the ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied, here's another example of him knowing physical fatigue, being wearied from his journey, he sat by the well. Now if you don't know, a well in that day would be a big hole in the ground, and people would sometimes even climb down into it on stairs to get the water or they'd have a bucket and a rope or whatever. So he's sitting like on a little bench around the well. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now later, after he has the interchange with the woman where she comes to be a believer, she goes and finds her friends and brings them back and all of that happens. Later, the disciples who had gone into town to get food, they came back and they said, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, did somebody bring him some food? They thought, he's hiding something down in the fold of his robe. I mean, that's, that's all they can think of. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. So there he was, hungry and thirsty, and yet fed by doing the will of God. That's how the Apostle Paul could say, not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. I know to be abased, to be low. I know how to abound, to be high. Everywhere and in all things I've learned to both be full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. Paul was sustained by doing God's will. Paul didn't say, I never feel hungry. Jesus didn't say, I never feel hungry. Jesus didn't say, I'm never thirsty. But what he did say was, doing God's will feeds my soul. And because of that, Jesus could say no to the temptation of the devil. Jesus could say, man doesn't live by bread alone. You know, we like to quote that phrase, but the rest of it is just as important. But by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Do you think it's possible 
that the Lord could sustain you through physical difficulties and you could live like the Apostle Paul and say, I've learned to be content in whatever state I'm in. Even though physically you are challenged, even though you might be hungry or you might be thirsty, might it be possible? Let me make, let me make this really personal, Ben. You're going to go to 140 degrees outside. Yeah. And we're going to pray for you. But you're going to get a chance to say, doing the will of God sustains me, even when it's 120 degrees. We're not going to get that opportunity to learn that, but we're going to have some other physical challenges in the next few months. Can we look at our physical life and say, I know I'm doing the will of God, so I'm going to live in His contentment. Now, the Apostle Paul had times when things were really great. In fact, when, he, when he's writing to the Philippians, he received their offering. And he says, boy, I'm so thankful for the offering you sent. But even there, why did he say he was thankful for their offering? That he said, now I can go out and get me a steak. Man, I've been hungry for a steak. I've been eating bread and water for weeks. No. Why was he so excited for their gift? Because there's going to be fruit that abounds to your account. He said, up in heaven, God has been taking note of what you're doing, and you have sent money to support me, and I'm so excited because God is going to bless you for that. God is going to give you eternal credit for that. Somebody's going to come to faith in Christ while I preach the gospel, and God is, that he was excited about doing God's will. And so he could endure the physical deprivation he had to go through, the physical challenge he had to go through. Jesus knew the depths of our physical challenge, but he was sustained by doing God's will. There's a second thing that Jesus understood, and we learn about him and us from this temptation, is this. Jesus understands our desire for spiritual control. Look back at Matthew chapter 4. And the next temptation that starts in verse 5. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. We don't know exactly what that's a reference to. There's a couple of good guesses, but, but there, was a, there was a tall roof, if you will, uh, that went out sort of on the edge of a precipice. The, the city of Jerusalem and the, the, the temple, of the, the previous temple and uh, palace and so on, were built sort of on the edge of a precipice, and then there was a flat spot up here, but the, the actual temple was like right here, and so if there was a roof coming out, there is a place that was several hundred feet from the top of that roof down to the ground level. He took him up to the pinnacle of the temple, and he said, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you in their hands. They shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. The devil essentially tempted Jesus to tell God what to do. He said, look, if you're the son of God, you should be able to to do as you please, and God will be forced to live up to his word 
from Psalm 91. This is a quote from Psalm 91 that says, they shall, bear their, they shall bear you up, you won't dash your foot against a stone. There was prophecy in the Old Testament that said, not a bone of the Savior would be broken. And that's what's significant about the spear being placed into his side as opposed to them breaking his legs with a big hammer to speed up his death. And of course, he was already dead when they, when they put the spear in his side. But the reason they did not break his legs was because there was a scripture in the Old Testament that said, not a bone of him will be broken. And so the devil is essentially making reference to this and saying, look, God's got to live up to his, this, this particular promise he made, so you can just do anything. You just toss yourself off, and God will be forced to protect you. The devil took a piece of scripture and so misused it that he tempted Jesus to disobey another scripture. And that's the one that Jesus quotes comes from Deuteronomy 6, which says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Here's a little rule of interpretation, by the way. If any part of your behavior is causing you to break part of the scripture, then you're not following the whole scripture. Because God's word never contradicts itself. And so the devil is coming along and, and saying, hey, you're the son of God. God has to protect you. Just put him to the test. You take charge. Don't sit here and let him tell you everything to do. When I was a firefighter many, many years ago, we went to a garage fire one night. And it was kind of a detached garage on a house, and it wasn't much of a fire. I know a small fire is always the one that somebody else has in their garage. But it wasn't a very big fire, and uh, so I'm kind of standing around, you know, a couple people were squirting water, and, and uh, you know, the, the officers were doing what the officers do, and I'm standing around. Pretty soon somebody says, Lunsford, get that, get that garden hose and put some water on this little hot spot right here. So I walk over, and I could see a garden hose going around the building somewhere, so I just grabbed the hose and it started pulling. Well, it, it was hung up. So I, I <clears throat> like that, and there it came. So I got the hose and went and sprayed the water where they told me to spray the water. Well, pretty soon, a fella came walking back around here, and he says, Lunsford, what are you doing? And I said, spraying water on this hot spot. He said, you jerked the hose right out of my hands. Sorry, bud. Us human beings have a weakness. We like to take the control into our hands. We are happiest when God, with God, when He is doing what we think is best. Some people even feel that they have a right to be angry with God when he doesn't live up to their expectations. And yet by virtue of, of who he is, he's God and I am not. And the very Son of God, the second person of the eternal Trinity, who came and took on human flesh and voluntarily submitted himself to the Father, he did not take matters into his own hands. He submitted himself to God, and he gave us that example of, of saying, I know you want to be in control, but it's not your place. It is God's place to be in control. We're familiar with this, this famous episode from his life, 
when it says he was, this is just the night when he was going to be arrested. And when he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven and strengthened him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It's actually possible to be under such stress that the blood does come out through your skin from your capillaries. I've never felt that way. I've never felt that depth. But Jesus looked and he knew what was coming. And he said, oh God, can it possibly be another way? And he said, but not my will, yours be done. He had voluntarily submitted himself. Christian, When you accepted Christ as your Savior, you took salvation from Him, but you also took Him as your Lord. And we need to look up to heaven and say, not my will, but yours be done. Which starts with the Scripture. Knowing the will of God is is 90-something percent right here. We live this out, no matter whether we like it or not, no matter whether it's hard or not, but we say, this is God's will. I cannot look at Him and and take the control out of His hand. I must leave it in His hand. Just after praying this prayer, look at this episode from the life of Christ. And suddenly, one of those, one of the disciples who were with Jesus, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? But how then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? Jesus said, Look, I have the power to take care of this. And the truth is, in our lives, there are many circumstances that come our way that we look at it and say, I can handle this. And yet God wants us to handle it His way. And that's what Jesus said. said, look, God has foreordained how this is going to go. There is a plan in place here, and it's not one that's going to be easy for me. But you bringing out your sword to defend me is not the plan. And so he said, put your sword away. And he healed the fellow's ear. And he voluntarily went along with the plan to arrest him. To have tested the father by putting him under pressure to provide by extraordinary means, especially a means of Jesus' own choosing, would have been for the Son to put His judgment and will above the Father's. How much more should we, mere creatures who are so imperfect, never place our will or judgment above God's? It's a quote from John MacArthur. I have to say, okay, God, as you will. But along the way, I can understand that Christ knows what that feels like to want to take control even though you don't. Thirdly, Christ understands our need for personal significance. Look at Matthew chapter 4. Excuse me, our desire. It's a desire, yes. 
Matthew chapter 4, verse 9, and the next temptation. Or excuse me, Matthew verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world with their glory. Now, I don't think there's a physical mountain like that. Perhaps there's a concept here of the devil just taking him way up, you know, uh, way up above the earth and somehow showing him all of the power that exists in the world. And he said to him, the devil said to Christ, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. You know what the scariest thing about that statement is? He has the power to give that stuff away. If you ever have a question about whether or not who's controlling the world, you understand it right here. He's called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2 for a reason. And the reason is because God has allowed him to have this control. And verse 10, Jesus responds to this offer and says, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and you only, him only shall you serve. The devil essentially said, Jesus, you can be the king of the world right now. Now we know through many Old Testament prophecies that God intended for Jesus to be the king of the world. But there is a right path and a wrong path to that destiny. The right path was through suffering and death. The wrong path was through anything else, especially worshiping the devil. Now, do you realize this temptation was repeated at least two more times? And, of course, if you read Luke's account of this temptation, there's a little phrase at the end of the temptations which says, the devil left him for a while, which means the tempting of Jesus was ongoing throughout his life. Here's two episodes you might be familiar with. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. So he began to tell the rest of the story to the disciples. They didn't know this right up front, that all of this was going to go on. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, does that mean Peter was possessed by the devil, that he was a talking puppet? No. But the thought, the concept, the idea was in Peter's mind, and somehow it got there, and according to Christ, it came as its origin from the devil. Peter said the same thing the devil said to him, which is, come on, Lord, you're not going to die. You're just going to keep building this kingdom and have it right here on earth. And Jesus knew, no, I, in in fact, that's what we just read. I'm going to be killed and raised the third day. Peter's just not getting it. Here's another time. This is a little different. Jesus had just fed the 5,000. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who's come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and to make him king, he departed into the mountain by himself alone. Do you, you want to know what Jesus knows from that right there? He knows what it's like to be flattered. 
They went, man, you're the guy. Come on, we're going to make you king. We've read the stories. We've heard the stories. We've watched the stories of politicians who seem to start out good, and they crash and burn, and they say by their own mouth, you get to a place where you think the rules don't apply to you. Why is that? Because other people are going, you're the man! You're the man! Oh, you're the man! And people go, yes, I am. That's what they were doing to Jesus. Jesus knows that weakness that we have, and he knows that pressure. But even more so, he understands the, this desire to be something. It's not a need, it's a desire. Each of these opportunities to be king would have required Jesus to step outside of God's will. At the very end of his ministry, this is what he said to the two men on the road to Emmaus. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. He says, God's will was for me to suffer and die and pay for the sins of the world. God's will was clearly known. Now, because of the obedience of Christ, even to the point of death, Philippians 2 tells us, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and, uh, in heaven and on earth, and that all should confess that Jesus is king to the glory of the Father. That's his position now. And the devil tried to say, I will give you, but do you understand this? All he was going to give him was the world. Jesus got the universe. He got everything. In fact, other scripture says that in the end, when God burns up this world and makes a new one, it says God is going to sum up everything in Christ. We struggle with our desire to be something, to be someone. God's path for Jesus to become king was the path of suffering and humility. And the difference between us and Jesus is we don't even know for certain that God wants us to be something. So when we grasp for some position of significance, some relation of significance, and when we're not waiting on God by living in His Word, we are dictating to God where He should take us. And we have that weakness, and Jesus understands that pull that is within us. But the answer is here. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. That's what Jesus did. That's what we need to do. If Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity, submitted himself to God and waited on his timing, how much more must we do the same? When it's about 10.30 at night, I love climbing into bed, slide into those sheets, and I just kind of... Let my whole body go, and the bed holds me up. 
I don't have to hold myself up anymore. You know, when you stand up, you don't realize it, but your muscles are all at work. When you sit, different muscles are at work. When you move your arm, it's all working. But when you lay in bed, you don't do anything. And the bed holds you up. Is Jesus holding you up today? He wants to. He understands the fatigue of standing upright, spiritually and physically. He wants to hold us up. We don't have to do it ourselves. He understands your weaknesses. And he really can hold you up if you'll let him. Heavenly Father, help us to rest in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to understand that he knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Because he, ex- he experienced the weaknesses we go through. Mm. Help us to rest in him this week. Help us to rest in him as we obey the word. I pray in his name. Amen.